This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Hello, this is Jason Staples and Eric Rostad. Yeah, you haven't heard my voice in a while. Coming to you right outside Lillington, North Carolina, or from right outside Lillington, North Carolina, and Nashville, Tennessee, respectively. Today, we're going to cover The Coddling of the American Mind by Greg Lukianoff <laughs> and Jonathan Hyde. We'll just go with it. I'm not quite sure how to say it either. How good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. Both Jason and I read this book during 2019. Uh, he actually suggested it to me, and I, I sneaked it onto my my list after already having set my list. So this was uh, I had to I had to nudge another book off, but um, I'm glad I did. So this episode is going to consist of three different segments. The first will be a brief introduction to the book, why both of us read it, and our initial reactions. Second segment will be two ideas and themes that stuck out to each of us. And then the final segment is our one thing, our one key takeaway that may expand into more than one thing, but uh, but kind of the, the main thing we're still thinking of after, after reading this book. So let's get into segment one. Jason's going to cover the authors. Okay, so the authors here are Greg Lukianoff, and I took a moment to actually take a listen to how he actually says it, so hopefully I got that pretty close. Uh, and Jonathan Haidt. First and foremost, Greg Lukianoff is an attorney. Uh, he graduated from Stanford Law School. He is the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, that is FIRE, uh, and is the author of several other books, including Unlearning Liberty, Campus Censorship and the End of the American Debate, or at the End of American Debate, Freedom from Speech, and FIRE's Guide to Free Speech on Campus. He has been a uh, pretty significant advocate for ensuring free speech rights, even when objectionable on college campuses and also in other educational contexts. And uh, he he's 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 half of the brain trust for this book. Then you have Jonathan Haidt and Jonathan Haidt is another uh, interesting, interesting combination of traits and such. He is a social psychologist and also a professor uh, he is presently the professor, uh, a professor of ethical leadership at New York University Stern School of Business. His primary areas of study are the psychology of morality and the more and moral emotions. He really hit it big with his second book, which is called The Righteous Mind, while people while good why good people are divided by politics and religion, which is published in 2012. He also did the hypo the happiness hypothesis in 2006, where he looks at. Uh, the relationship between ancient philosophies such as Stoicism and Buddhism and things like that, uh, and how those things correlate to what is known or what has been established through modern science and through modern psychological uh, experimentation and such. Uh, he also is well known for, or at least I should say well known in uh, academic circles for his having been the co a co-founder of the Heterodox Academy, which is a nonprofit organization that works to increase viewpoint diversity, mutual understanding, and productive disagreement. Uh, and another person, again, who's really into uh, pushing for and advocating for 
ways of getting people to communicate across various political differences and and so on. Uh, And there are a number of places where he corresponds with some of our other prior books in this series, particularly Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, where uh, he often talks about uh, social intuitionism, intuitions first, and then rationalism, rationalization second, which comes up in this book as well. Uh, that's something that he uh, he spends a lot of time on and is well known for, uh, and that corresponds well with Systems 1 and 2 described in Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, and you can go back and take a look at our prior episode on that or take a listen to that if you're interested. But in any case, uh, Haidt is especially well known for his, uh, his insistence on the importance of having multiple viewpoints and having uh, all sorts of dialogue among people with different viewpoints and uh, and the importance of that for development of a, of a just and good society, uh, as well as how that impacts uh, people's lives and so on. So that's the background for these two authors. They must be conservatives then. Why would they be conservatives? Sound like it. Well, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily identify those positions as conservative positions, but, uh, you know, neither of them identify as such. And I guess that was, uh, you've got down in the notes that that was a big shocker to you. Yes. Yeah. I, I assumed, I, so they, they say that on page 216. And so for the first 215 pages, I'm like, these guys have to be and and not, not just from what you said about them, but, um, the, the content in the book, I was thinking, man, these guys must be conservatives and they they're just going to get ridiculed for this book and then in 216 this is what they say uh greg identifies as a liberal with some sympathies for libertarian perspectives before fire he worked for an environmental justice group he worked for an organization that advocates for refugee rights and protections in central europe and he he interned at the aclu of northern california john considers himself a centrist who sides with the democratic party on the great majority of issues but who has learned a lot from the writings of conservative intellectuals, from Edmund Burke through Thomas Sowell. Neither of us have ever voted for a Republican for Congress or for the presidency. And and the reason I, I think that's important is I think it adds to the to the dialogue in a way of that they're trying to get this, as you mentioned, across the board. It's not it's not trying to come from one perspective and and only from that perspective, but really to, to, to get a lot of ideas together. And so I appreciated that from the book and I appreciated that they, they shared that, that they didn't share it right at the beginning, but, um, but just kind of let the ideas come forth first and then identified the, the direction that they came from for each, uh, from each side of it. Well, and, and I think the maybe, maybe the reason that you would have assumed that both authors would have come more from closer to the right hand side of the spectrum in this book is that much of what they criticize is on the left. Now they critic they actually do criticize plenty on the right as well, but much of what they criticize is how uh, many of these ideas, particularly in higher education, uh, are coming from the left or have been embraced by many on the left, and so it. It would it would make sense if you said, well, you know, obviously they're coming from a right leaning perspective to make these critiques. But as it turns out, they're actually critiquing uh, in many respects their own tribe uh, and and suggesting that that it's important that, you know, <laughs> don't lose the moral high ground here, folks uh, on, you know, our own team. Uh, we, we don't want to have to 
to to move over to to defend the opposite side. But if if nobody else will, then you know we need to have some dialogue because there are actually some good points on uh, lots of things that if we just get really tribal about things, we don't understand well. So that's it's a big part of what they're what they're approaching. Yeah. Um, as for who suggested the book, Jason, you actually suggested it to me. Uh, you said it was one that was uh, an, a really important one. And um, so I made the decision to cut out one of the other books on my reading list and enter this one in. So, uh, so goodbye, um, James Joyce. And hello, coddling of the American mind. I might have to add that. You made one the in. right choice. I may have to add that one in again later. But um, yeah, you made the right choice. And how did, how did you me, hear about it? Yeah, as for me, I I think I heard about it first from Econ Talk, actually a podcast uh, with Russ Roberts that I am uh, a religious listener to, uh, and I heard uh, Jonathan Haidt's interview on there, and this was maybe a year before, and then I I kept seeing the book coming up in a few discussions, and you know I got I'm I'm a part of a few. Uh, email groups and things in which I, I, the, the book was, was sent out a couple times. And so I saw it show up a couple times and eventually it was like, I, I need to read this. I need to take a look at this. So, uh, I think it was a confluence of factors, but probably most, uh, m- the, the first attention I got, uh, uh, that, that was drawn to it was from econ talk. Okay. And you, uh, you did audiobook. Yeah. I, re- I, I, I use the audiobook primarily. Yeah. Cool. Which I, um, is read by Jonathan Haidt, which oh, makes neat. it actually that much better because you're actually hearing the voice of one of the authors. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't realize that. Um, I read the book. It was uh, April 20th through 23rd. It's a 269 page book. And so I, it, I did it like 90 pages per day, which is pretty on the upper end for me. Took six hours, 48 minutes total. Uh, so about a minute 31 per page. And that's just something I've been curious about recently, just on how long these, these books take. And how, how long per page and, and all that. So I've been sharing that recently and that those are the, the stats from this book. So for the average male uh, of your age, that's roughly uh, three days worth of television. Yep. Which well, is a lot well, of TV, actually. Yeah, I think average American is four hours a day on TV. So actually about a well, there you go. day and a half almost, a little yeah. more. All right. So as for the book's structure, the book is structured into, into four parts. The first part uh, focuses on three bad ideas. What they, I, what they say is the identification of three great untruths that have been embraced by mostly American culture, but modern Western culture in particular, or in general, uh, an American culture in particular. Uh, and we'll get into these three. Do you want to talk through these three ideas now or yeah yeah i can yeah i'll I'll just state them out the the first one is the untruth of fragility basically what doesn't kill you makes you weaker and it's obviously a play on nietzsche's what doesn't kill you makes you stronger but the untruth of fragility that what doesn't kill you actually makes you weaker so that's the first one the second one is the untruth of, of emotional reasoning so you must always trust your feelings so whatever your feelings tell you if that's about a particular person or an idea, you've got to trust that over, over facts. And the third is the untruth of us versus them, which is life is a battle between good people and evil people. So those are the three bad ideas that they identify in part one that basically govern the rest of the book. So they spend a chapter on each of those discussing what 
each of those ideas actually involves. And so we won't get into that too much now, but basically they try to develop those ideas and how they've become embraced, what in, what they entail. Uh, and then from there, part two then says, here's how these bad ideas, this is what they look like in action. And here are some specific examples of where we see these bad ideas in the real world and the consequences that they're bringing about. Part three then examines how did we get here? How in the world did we get to the place where these three bad ideas have become so firmly ensconced in modern American culture and Western culture in general? So how did we get here? So this is the 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 pathology part of it. And then part four is wising up. And that's to basically say, okay, what, how can we bring healing now that the, now that we've identified the disease, what is the treatment? And so they give a treatment plan effectively in part four, which is suggestions for parents, universities, and societies at large about how to address and root out these three bad ideas in order to prevent the significant problems that these three ideas bring about in larger society if once they're once they're unleashed. And the reason why this is all important is because it's leading down a path and, and they identify this path as uh, there's more division between people. There's higher rates of depression, higher rates of suicide. Professors have, are, are increasingly having a fear of teaching particular topics or in particular manners. And there's witch hunts. And so that's the impact, and those are not good things. And so what, what is leading to those things? How can we get out of those things? It's, it's, a, it's a neat book in that sense of where it doesn't just identify what's going on, but uh, as Jason said, the last, last part, part four, wise, wising up. So what can we do from this point forward? Yeah, it's easy to identify that, you know, oh, we're becoming more tribal. We're becoming more polarized. We're, you know, we've got all sorts of these, all sorts of obvious problems in, in our political and social landscape. Lots of people have identified those things. That's not radical. But specifically identifying three ideas at the root there that, that can be dealt with by specific actions on the part of parents, educators, and just in general watching out for these things that actually makes this book fairly unique. And I think it's very, it's well worth reading as a, as a result. And again, in large measure, this book, which did start as an article in the Atlantic. So you, you can actually go and, and find that article online. We'll link it uh, through the, through the show notes. But uh, if you want a taste of where they're going, but the book develops those the ideas of that article much, much more clearly and, and more thoroughly. Uh, but it basically is a book about how, Look, and, and this is one of the one of the themes of the book in general. Again, the third bad idea is that the world is is a battle between good people and evil people. Basically, what they're identifying is that the things that are causing or that are at root of so much of the political polarization and so many of the problems that we see in uh, in in modern culture are not the result of people with bad intentions, they're the result of good intentions gone awry. And so ultimately the attempt to make things better, it's one of those things of unintended consequences 
is they're the things that you need to watch out for. And it's unintended consequences that have result resulted in the situation that we're in now. And as you've, I'm looking at your notes now, coddling what they mean by this. And this is something that we should put up front. This is a, something of a, of a challenging title. There are going to be some people who are going to look at this book. They're going to hear the, the, the description of it, that it's about bad ideas that, that, have caused or fostered all sorts of additional problems of polarization and anxiety and depression in, in wider society. And they're going to say, oh, how dare you say I'm coddled or that, you know, people are coddled. There are real problems out there and it's not coddling. Well, don't be misled by the title because the title itself means it, what they mean by coddling is, is overprotection is the attempt to protect against all sorts of things that are not necessarily catastrophic. And then by trying to insulate and protect against those things, you wind up being hypersensitive and over, uh, uh, basically over allergic. You become vulnerable to things that are actually problematic. And so, so that's, that's the, uh, the, the big deal that they're, that they're trying to, to address there. And again, they, they actually open the book. One of the key things that they talk about there is peanut allergies, you, you you basically can't send your kid to a preschool or half half of mid, say grade schools today with nuts of any kind because there's been an increase in peanut allergies and the last thing anybody wants is for somebody to drop dead because of a you know some kid to brought in a peanut butter sandwich to school and they basically point out that well one of the reasons that we have so such significant uh, such a significant we've had such a significant increase in peanut allergies is that for the better part of two decades, you had people who were being told, they were being counseled to avoid exposing their children to any potential, anything that might be peanut-based early on. And you want to make sure that, well, you don't, don't, don't expose them. Kids are vulnerable. You want to protect them from peanut products just in case. Well, as it turns out, the harm from that is that... <laughs> Peanut allergies surge precisely because parents and teachers start had started protecting children from exposure to peanuts. And so now lots more people who didn't get exposed to peanuts when they were very young, when that allergy would not be acquired or when that allergy is acquired and exposure to the to peanuts actually would prevent you from getting that that allergy potentially. Those people now are allergic to peanuts. And so now you've got a, a reinforcing system and they, they use that parallel to talk about how overprotection in all sorts of arenas can lead to lots of bad problems. So uh, so, yeah, you want to take it from there in terms of what angle they uh, they, they take here in terms of how they evaluate that. Yeah. And as, as for initial reaction, what uh, what were your you, you shared a little bit about uh, what you thought of the book, but. What else, what else about the book? What was your initial reaction? My initial reaction is that this book is brilliant. Uh, and I don't have that reaction very often to a lot of books. Now, I've had uh, I've had the, the, the privilege to, of reading some really good books through this project that we've been engaged in. But this is definitely one of the best books I've read in a long time. Uh, and the way that they very simply cut through a lot of the potentially partisan hand grenades and, uh, you know, eliminate all sorts of the, the, these Gordian knots and what needs to be done and address things from the perspective of combining ancient wisdom and cognitive behavioral therapy approaches, which I thought that that approach of, of 
bringing cognitive behavioral therapy in and saying, look, when you are treating someone as a clinical psychologist for anxiety and for depression here in terms of cognitive behavioral therapy are the things that you're going to be counseling this person to you're going to be counseling this person to overcome these specific mental habits. And it turns out that those are those are the, exactly the kinds of mental habits that we're training children to have from the time that we're raising them as parents and then within our own uh, educational system. And then we're reinforcing that at the university level. And the whole thing ultimately ends up reinforcing the very kinds of negative thought patterns that cognitive behavioral therapy is designed to undermine and designed to treat. And that ancient wisdom of, across multiple traditions says should be avoided. And yet we're reinforcing and fostering those things. The way that they were able to do that and organize that and synthesize that in a relatively short book, I think is flat out brilliant. Yeah. And that's the reason I added it to my list because I, your book suggestions for this project have been excellent. Uh, the Kahneman book being one of those and then uh, Taleb as well. And so I, I knew that I, I needed to, to add this one this year. And, and likewise, I thought it was a really important book. And I always like kind of, I, and I might start doing this in books in the future. I, I, I came across someone that uh, said they do this. They write all the assumptions they have about the book in the back of the book before they start reading it. And then, and then look at that after they've read the book. And I, I went into this book with a lot of assumptions. Uh, one of them, as I've stated, that the, the authors had to have come from more of a right-leaning side. I was totally incorrect on that. The other, the other main assumption I made was that the universities were to blame and for, for the, these, these problems, the three great untruths. And what this book shows is that, uh, they may have a part in it, but it's, they don't even have the main part. A lot of it is from society, technology, parenting, and all of these things are kind of coming together. And, and if anything, universities are having to react in, yeah, it's a symptom. Yeah, and potentially react in, they were not expecting this, and all of a sudden it's, oh, what do we do here? And so just to, just to see that and, and to have a lot of these kind of assumptions of, of what's going on, because that's, from where, what I've seen of this, a lot of it is taking place at the university. So my, I just took the next step and said, okay, it must be because of what these students are being taught at the universities. But it's, that's not the case at all uh, as presented in this book. And so, the, but there was a lot of things like that where my assumptions were totally flipped. And we'll get into some of those on, uh, in this episode. As for who should read the book, um, I, I think it's a must read for educators and parents. Um, Jason, I know you've suggested it to a lot of people. Who, who else do you think would benefit from, from this book? Uh, if, you are, if you are alive in <laughs> the United States or Western Europe then odds are this book will be valuable for you. <laughs> and if you have any contact with children or with young people, then this is a must read, in my view. If you're an educator or you're a parent, you need to read this book. If you are not an educator or a parent, but you just live in our wider and larger society, then you probably should read this book. So uh, I just there aren't very many books that I would counsel everyone to read, but generally uh, and generally, you know, there there's an audience for specific books. But this is one of those rare books that there aren't very many people that wouldn't benefit from reading this book. Yeah, I can't think of anybody that wouldn't. 
Now on to segment two. And I usually start this off, I, I, I'll tell about how you can share your reading list on the, the Books of Titans website, but I wanted to give Jason an opportunity here to, to tell what he's been up to and um, it's some exciting things. So Jason. Yeah. So the reason I've been absent has been, uh, it's not been that I've not been reading. I've been reading plenty, but, uh, I was, I, 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 in addition to teaching four classes, uh, four different classes, uh, you know, at the university level this last, uh, this last semester, I was also working on finishing two academic books to get out to review. Those books are now, are now, under review by uh, a, a major university press, and hopefully will be uh, accepted and in, in the pipeline soon. Well, soon in the academic world is not soon pretty much anywhere else. But uh, getting those two books edited and 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 uh, finalized to, to send off was a, was a pretty big project, and uh, also got another article out and a couple other things. So I've been working on producing some books and 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 articles and other material. Uh, to such a degree that, uh, that, that basically joining you all on this podcast was going to have to be something for the second half of the year for me. Well, now I'm in that second half of the year. I'm working on two other book projects along with a few articles as well, but uh, those book projects are a little bit less involved uh, and the deadlines on those are a little further down the line so I can get back to, uh, to rejoining this. And so I'm going to be doing some solo episodes here soon and uh, also... Hopefully sometime in 2020, I'll have some announcements about my own books that will be out uh, and ready for perusal for those of you who might be interested in things like early Judaism or early Christianity or uh, the ancient Mediterranean, all sorts of things in my particular area of research. So given that, let's get to our first a discussion of theme. So our theme one discussion or our idea that, that stood out that we uh, wanted to discuss here in terms of the book. So Eric, you go ahead and start with this one. Uh, what is one theme that ran through this book that you found especially uh, noteworthy or, or uh, important or valuable that, that deserves discussion here? Well, the, the, the one that first stuck out to me comes at the very beginning it's on page nine and they they channel in uh talib and and his idea of anti-fragility and here's the the quote from page nine many university students are learning to think in distorted ways and this increases their likelihood of becoming fragile anxious and easily hurt but they make the point and and i mean they're they're just basically taking from from talib's book and uh, that is not one that i have read uh have you read his anti-fragile book that is basically the the one big book of his that i haven't read and it's uh on my list for later in this year but uh actually we've got to we've still got to finish our discussion we'll be doing a discussion on this podcast very soon about surprise about uh fooled by randomness and the black swan and uh and skin in the game all of which uh have been part of this project so stay tuned for for our discussions of those those books are done we just haven't had a chance to discuss them the the discussions are coming very soon so uh so yeah like i said that's the one that i have not read of his yeah so the the idea is basically this students are not fragile they don't but they don't start out resilient either. So fragile means that they could break easily. And then if they do, they can't heal themselves. So if you treat students as fragile or, or, or you treat children as fragile, then that's going to have ramifications. If you treat them as resilient, then they can withstand stock shocks in their lives. 
they but learn they learn it, to withstand shocks that's the thing is that you yeah. you become anti-fragile over time to some degree if you're treated as such yeah and that's where they take it a step further from even being resilient is when you're anti-fragile that requires stressors and challenges in your life in order to learn adapt and grow so those things are not going to break you so remember the the first untruth the untruth of fragility what doesn't kill you makes you weaker so that would be that children and students are fragile so we've got to be careful around them that's an untruth the the truth is that they're anti-fragile that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger what stressors in your life if when you overcome that there's a sense of accomplishment there's there's then the ability to take on higher challenges and it's a constant constant growth in your life but it does require kind of getting cut down and then and then growing back up so that's the idea behind anti-fragile and they take this idea through a number of different situations in the book but that's one that uh when i think back to this book anti-fragility is one that that definitely comes to mind even though it's not their idea their their way of of incorporating it into into this the discussion in this book is is really good yeah and and for me one of the things that this is so intuitive to me in in so many ways because i you know i grew up an athlete Mm -hmm. and that there are so many of the assumptions about how you learn to think as an athlete that to me it, it just it's nonsense to think any other way that oh well you know you don't want to you don't want to exercise because it hurts when you you know you get sore well yeah but you know there's like good sore you learn pretty quickly as an athlete to distinguish between good soreness and like bad soreness there's good pain and bad pain and you learn to distinguish between those good pain actually makes you stronger makes you more resilient makes you a better athlete makes you strong makes you a more formidable individual in your given sport and it takes a lot of blood sweat and tears to become a top quality athlete and that's not just physically but mentally you have to put yourself through a lot of difficulty or, you know, one of the favorite words that you'll hear in, and it's actually infuriating to some degree how often this comes up because it's often self-created in, uh, in, in athletics, but this comes up in almost any interview you hear about adversity and how we overcame adversity. Everything in athletics is about adversity. And in a lot of cases, it's creating your own adversity so that you can overcome it. And, that presumes that kind of athletic mindset presumes anti-fragility that if I challenge myself and I push myself and I get myself to where I'm going to be sore and so on, well, tomorrow I'm going to wake up a little bit stronger. And that's really what they're, what they're pushing here is that that's the nature of that's human nature in general. You push yourself and you train yourself to be stronger and you're going to get stronger. But if you lay in bed and you refuse to get out of bed because you know, you might, get sore from stretching out your, your legs and try and, and putting the effort in walking. Well, then anything, any stimulus is ultimately going to hurt and be painful. That said, there still is such a thing as injury. There's still, it's not good pain when you, as I've done, go up to block a person's shot, get undercut, uh, you know, fly over their shoulders and then land on their foot with all your force on the other side of their body coming down from, you know, with, with, with all of your weight and having the bottom part of your foot touch the upper part of your leg. That doesn't result in good pain. 
<laughs> or or concussions as as you've yeah i've had six concussions too yeah there's that <laughs> so you know there's which if you're wondering why at times i'm you know maybe i ramble on just a little bit on this episode be merciful to my six concussions <laughs> um but there are there is bad pain there and they acknowledge this in this book they are more than willing to say look there is such a thing as real trauma there is such a thing that there there are situations that can be of their very nature debilitating. It's not going to make you stronger to get shot. But if you go and you do a set of squats, yeah, it's probably going to hurt, but it's going to make you stronger in the in 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 the end, and that's one of the big points that they emphasize in this book is it's really really important to be to be able to distinguish between those two things and then to be able to systematically expose ourselves to the things that may be uncomfortable because it's actually going to improve us both individually and societally. So I, I really love that, that theme. Yeah. So what was your first big thing that stuck out to you? The big, the, the, and it's related to yours. And one of the things that, that was really striking to me is that, all the time on academic campuses now, you know, again, I'm in higher education. We hear all about the anxiety and depression epidemic and how, you know, our students are much more. Uh, uh, we hear this all the time that, you know, your students are now much, much more fragile than they used to be. And you have to make room for them because, you know, there's much, much higher levels of anxiety. And, you know, students are, are, are always having to deal with uh, greater levels of, of depression and anxiety and, and various mental uh, uh, ailments and, and illnesses that maybe people in prior generations didn't have to. And a lot of what you hear at the academic level or the, a part of the discussion is the, this discussion of, well, you know, they've got a lot more challenges than the prior generations did. I mean, for one, you've got people from different, from lower classes who are first, first time uh, in college and, you know, they're working multiple jobs and there's just more pressures that are there for people on college campuses today. And that that's why we need to be so much more careful with them. And Lukianoff and, uh, and height challenge that they hit that right on the nose and they say, no, 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 no. That's not why we're seeing the anxiety and depression ap epidemic that we are. It's not because there are unique pressures or greater pressures in this generation that, than there were previously. Not, that's not the reason. The reason is it's not due to to harder lives or to, to, to those to, to things that need to be overcome. It's because we're teaching ourselves and we're teaching our younger young people to be anxious and depressed by programming in bad thought patterns that produce anger and, or, and, and uh, anxiety and depression. And the quote in the book that, that, they turn to late later on. This is from uh, classical literature is your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. Mm -hmm. And basically they're saying we are training a generation of people who are not trained to guard their own thoughts or to guard themselves from their own thoughts. And we basically let our own feelings and our own uh, notions run wild. And then we wonder why we, we struggle with, mental illness and anxiety and so on. And that is not to diminish the reality of, of depression and anxiety. I mean, Jonathan Haidt is a psychologist. Like, that's what he does. He knows how important and how, how real that stuff is. 
But what he is saying is we actually produ- we create the conditions for precisely those very real, very serious mental illnesses by what we're doing socially, by, again, by this myth of fragility where we're, we're training people ultimately to be vulnerable to the very kinds of anxiety and, and depression that we're seeing. And one of the interesting things is it's not actually the people who are overcoming the most who are the most vulnerable in terms of socioeconomic status or whatever, those aren't, don't tend to be the ones who are struggling the most with depression and anxiety. It's actually often those in higher classes or those who have a pretty significant amount of privilege that they're coming from who are struggling the most with these things. And they address why that is in this book. And that also exposes why it's not a matter of unique circumstances or unique pressures of the present generation, it's a matter of how we're training ourselves to think. And that that's what they get to. They identify that 60% of students in Ivy League colleges are from the top 1%. Right. And Ivy League colleges are the ones, Ivy League and other uh, very, high, very, very expensive and highly exclusive uh, colleges and universities, those are the ones that are having the highest rates of anxiety and depression. And if it were due to unique things, you know, unique pressures and so on, you would expect the the biggest anxiety and depression numbers to be not with the people from those places, but from lower down the spectrum uh, where, you know, the non one percenters are, are more of the majority. Well, in the quote you mentioned there, that it seems to be part of a larger trend where your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. But the but the the attack here is on other people's thoughts and how that could hurt me if if I'm if I have to if I have to put up with someone else's thoughts that may, that may harm me. So there it's and then it goes to that issue of uh, good people versus evil people that the uh, the untruth of us versus them. But you've got uh, Sol- Solzhenitsyn, is that how you say it? Solzhenitsyn, yeah. Who says the the dividing line between good and evil runs through the heart of every person. And so you, it's not this group over here is evil. So everything I believe is, is good and everything they believe is evil. Um, everything they think is bad, but my own thought process is okay. It just seems to be, it's like a larger trend of kind of that good, evil idea whereas the opposite of that is no that that runs through your own heart that runs through you and it's kind of it just reminds me of what you teach in in your in your class on the on the holocaust as well where or i don't think it's on the holocaust but but you're you're looking at the holocaust and what what's the lesson from that what's what's the lesson for for never forget is it never forget that happened or is it never forget that you could you you could do that yeah not i could become that what they did is something that i myself you know all of us have that in us and that's the dangerous thing you could go back and assault you could go back and assassinate hitler and it wouldn't necessarily stop a thing mm-hmm. that's that's the frightening thing yeah all right you want to go ahead and move to theme two yeah my second big one was just in in his discussion of when this shift occurred. And I, I love seeing this kind of thing in, in books. Uh, some of the other books 
Thomas Friedman's uh, Thank You for Being Late. He, he says 2007 is the year when a lot of the technology shift shifted. It's when the iPhone came out and uh, he identifies all these other things. And, and from 2007, we have these, these shifts. In this book, they identify 2013 as being the year of the shift. And they, they correlate it with it aligning with Generation Z, which is the generation after millennials. And it's, it's also called iGen. Uh, but it's, it's roughly 1995 to 2012. If you were born within that period, you're part of Generation Z. And the thing they say that, that distinguishes this generation is that they are the first generation with social media. Not just the internet, because browsing is, is, is one thing. But one, once social media was introduced, that's, that's where the shift started happening to where the, these kids growing up, they're now growing up with social media. And we, we don't really know the ramifications for that. We're just, we're using it. We're, we're, so, we're on it. And not just social media too, but social media, he, they also make the point that social media that is in your pocket because yep. of mobile technology starting in around 2007, again, the advent of the, of the iPhone, which if you were born in 1995, you're hitting middle school or so right around that time. So you've not known a time basically without both social media and the ability to access that anytime, anywhere. So that yeah. combination. Yeah. And, and I, I thought that was fascinating. Uh, and, and also just in, in combination with two of the books from the 2017 reading list, uh, Generations and the Fourth Turning. Uh, and, and those those books are, are uh, I think Generations is one that we're going to be discussing later later on this year. I think that's on your list this year, Jason. Um, and if it's not, it, it, we, we should discuss that at some point because just that those generational differences and how how that impacts things. And I, I thought it was fascinating that, that they identified 2013 as the year. And it, it also might maybe want to ask you because you you've You've obviously been on, on university campuses before that time and after that time. Did you also start to notice a shift around that time period? I'll be honest. When I hit that section in the book, my jaw hit the floor. Really? Because I, so I've, I've taught various university level classes since 2007. And, uh, and, but I had a fellowship that allowed me basically not to teach for about two years. So uh, I didn't teach between 2011 and 2013. Uh, and then I, I started back up again in the fall of 2013. And it was the worst semester of my life. Hmm. Now, not only did my house catch on fire and burn that semester at the very beginning, you know, second week of class, so that was also a factor. But that group of students, I, I, I have always had great rapport with my students, have always really enjoyed the teaching process. It was miserable. With one class in particular, but two of my introductory level classes, so the, the these are freshmen and sophomores from 2013, those two classes, the upper level class that I taught that semester was great. These were up, these were uh, juniors, juniors and seniors, but the freshmen and sophomores from the, from the fall semester of 2013, I have never had a group like that before or since. Huh. And I had to change certain ways that I approach certain topics that I that I uh, handled certain things because 
the the things had just changed and I, I i remember commenting to my wife around the time like i haven't been out of the classroom that long i've been you know i haven't taught in two years but i'm not doing anything any different and what is going on with these hmm. kids and wow. i mean i had two kids from one of those classes that went to the dean to try to get me fired that semester because they, they were offended at something and wow. they, they actually didn't specify what they were really offended at. They were kind of general with that. And fortunately, I record my classes. Yeah. So when the dean asked about some specific stuff, I said, well, I have all the classes recorded. We can go back and we can listen to everything. And I, I went ahead and since I'd been notified what the meeting might be about, I went, I'd gone ahead and ripped out every possible place where various topics had been discussed in the class. And I'd pulled them into one file and I said, you know, I created this file. Here's every place where we've discussed it across the semester. You can feel free to listen to all the lectures from the semester. And that actually was something that helped me dramatically. It, it, it made a big difference because I mean, I don't, I don't know what the, what the response would have been had I not, first of all, taken it so seriously. I mean, I was obviously something I took seriously, but also had, had I not had evidence that, well, anything that they're saying isn't really legitimate because I have the, I have the, the recordings. Yeah. But that semester was the, like I said, the worst of my life. And there were certain things that I I've had to be a little bit softer on or a little bit uh, more careful on ever since. And I've been, mm. I've been more cautious in the classroom ever since that semester in the fall of 2013 because wow. things changed then. And so when I read that, it was like, whoa. <laughs> so it wasn't yeah. just me. <laughs> so, and I've heard another, a number of other professors since that have talked about, you know, shifts and changes and all that, but they didn't pinpoint it that way. And again, it was easy for me because of just taking those two years off and then jumping in and then having that one really bad experience, which is the only really bad experience I've ever had as a teacher. Yeah. So, wow. yeah, I, I think they, they hit it right on the head. Yeah. Well, and it's one of those, and, and my, my one thing is going to tie in deeper to this of it. It's, I, I love when you read a book and it, and it helps you identify those, those shifts and it just kind of helps put things into perspective. Um, so this was one of those books, especially with, um, with that turning point of 2013. What about your uh, your final idea here? And yeah, in so my two. second idea here, and, and I'm going to be pretty quick with this one. The second idea that I I just found really fascinating was their their section where they're they're addressing. This is from section two, where they were addressing basically the three bad ideas in action, and they they had uh, a chapter on intimidation and uh, violence and so on on campuses in particular. But basically this idea that speech is violence that has been embraced on uh, on campuses and so on, uh, they evaluate that. But the, it, it's chapter five, which is a chapter on witch hunts that they I, – I just – I found that chapter so fascinating and so incisive where they talk about how – Basically, what you're what you're seeing is you're seeing a on 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 campuses in particular, but you're seeing all sorts of notions, and they they have four 
polit- four def- definitions of pol- or four characteristics of a, of a political witch hunt. Number one, they arise quickly. Number two is that they involve c- crimes not against individuals but against the collective with often trivial or fabricated charges. That's number three. And then number four is fear of defending the the accused. So nobody wants to step in and defend the accused, even if they know better, because they don't want the the ire of the mob coming on them. You don't want to say, no, she's not a witch. Why? Well, because (laughs) that that must mean you're a witch. If you know she's not a witch, or you're saying she's not a witch, then you must be. Well, that's the, the other thing. And they address a number of these kinds of witch hunts where basically somebody gets caught up, says something completely uh, benign and then just gets caught up by either an Internet mob or by uh, on campus mobs where suddenly everybody's demanding that this person be fired or there's actual attacks against a person or whatever. And it's one thing to identify that this seems to be happening more often what I found so fascinating is that they said this is that they they noted, first of all, that this tends to happen more most often. And it really has only been limited in terms of the really big flashpoint examples to highly, highly exclusive liberal uh, uh, liberal universities. Universities that have a an especially left leaning uh, profile. And they asked why that might be. And ultimately, they concluded that in order to have witch hunts, in order for witch hunts to be a problem, it requires a, a certain level. There's a critical mass of a lack of diversity, a lack of viewpoint diversity that's required. Once you get to the place where there's so much ideological homogeneity within a population, then what ends up happening is there become there comes to be a, a, a faster and faster race to ideological purity because there's no longer other people around to provide real real world examples of an other that you actually have to engage with. And so you end up creating this other and then demonizing this other. And so the the irony here is that it's in the these in the most liberal environments that you're actually seeing liberals attacking liberals and doing so in ways that are full and that, that give every character that, that match every characteristic of a witch hunt. And so basically that uh, they, they say that the, uh, the most important way of fighting against this tendency, this tribal tendency to, start to root out witches in your midst, this tribal tendency towards uh, witch hunts. Ultimately, you have to have diverse viewpoints on campuses. And once you get to a certain tipping point of a lack of viewpoint diversity, you're suddenly going to have significant concerns and dangers of witch hunts. And when you start looking at certain universities, well, you know, as of right now, across across universities in general, university faculty, it's five to one that identify as either far left or liberal versus uh, versus middle of the road or conservative. So that's a pretty high ratio. And then at some universities, that's as high as 12 to one. But even more significant is and this was not in the book because it's a more recent article. University administrators, university administration is closer to 16 to one. 
And when you get that level of intellectual homogeneity, it actually leads to uh, vulnerability to witch hunts. And I found that to be a really fascinating and, and really incisive critique. Now into segment three and the one thing, both of our, our key takeaways from this book. And this is where I usually talk about the thing that I'm either going to try to implement in my life as a result of reading the book or the thing that I'm still thinking about after reading the book. And so I, I read this a while, uh, like two months ago. And so the thing that I'm still thinking about, it, it ties in with, with my last thing in segment two of, of 2013 being the, the year of, of the shift. But here are some things that they identify as being societal shifts. And this has, I guess, just helped me in my own life to see where, where I fall prey to some of these things. And so I'm just going to go through uh, seven different, or, sorry, six different societal shifts that they identify. The first one we talked about before from internet to social media, and then also tying in with mobile devices. So always being on and then the, the social aspect of it and not just looking up information, but, um, but, uh, but the social media and, and, and how that really created a, a big shift. The second is free play to safetyism. So I know when I grew up, I, I would ride my bike to a park with friends and we'd, we'd build forts and play. And I mean, that idea now it, it would like parents would just go insane if, if their kids were, you can get arrested 20 minutes for that. Yeah. If you're a parent who lets your kid do that. Yeah. I mean, really, you know, probably 20 minutes from home bike ride. And, and now that would just be like, uh, that would be insane. Uh, the, the next one intent to impact. So it's not what the person intended what they intended to mean by what they said, but it's actually the impact on you. And again, these are, these are not things that are good. These are not societal shifts that are, that are good. But in the past, we may have given somebody, somebody the benefit of the doubt with what they said. Uh, maybe they intended something different, but if, if that's not the basis if if instead it's, well, that made that impacted me and it made me feel really bad, then you, it's, it's easier to say that that person's evil because they made you feel bad as opposed to, giving them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, the fourth one here, this, this was amazing. The common humanity identity politics to common enemy identity politics. And how this came up is they, they talked about Dr. Martin Luther King. And what he did is he said, look, we need to go back to the ideals that this country was founded on. We need to go to common humanity. You, our ideals for this country are this and we are, we, the, the country is not living up to that. So that's common humanity identity politics, whereas con, common enemy identity, and identity politics is uh, the us versus them. And I, I, I just thought the, the identification of, of that shift was, was really important. And, and I mean, you, you see that every day. You see it in um, even the algorithms on a lot of the social platforms. Like, you're not going to see the other side because... Well, you see it from one side and then everything that the other side says is, is common enemy. Uh, the next one, number five, rebutted to redacted. And this goes into what Jason was just talking about with witch hunts. In the past, if, uh, if you disagreed with something, you would, you would rebut it. You, you, know, you, would, you would respond. There would be a dialogue. And now things can get redacted. They can be removed. So it's as if you never said it. 
And if you do that, there's no room for dialogue. There's no room to, to converse about ideas if an idea is dangerous or if it hurts you and it's redacted. Yeah, we're not going to let that guy on our campus. We're going to redact yeah. that idea. Yeah. And so then there, there's not a, a sharing of, of any ideas. And the last one is love of party to hatred of other party. And I mean, I, this, this is an obvious one, but um, so in what they're talking about is political party here. So maybe in the past, uh, somebody voted for Clinton or they voted for, for Reagan, uh, Bill Clinton or, or Reagan because they loved the, the Republican or Democratic Party. But now it's really hatred. And I, I mean, I hear this all the time. I, I, almost everyone you talk to about the 2016 election, they said, well, I just didn't want Trump to get in or I, I didn't want to, Hillary to get in. So I voted, I voted this way. So it wasn't really a love of the particular person or the party. It was just to keep the other party out. And that could be voting along party lines. Um, but just... And, and I know this has gone on throughout history, but it, it seems to have accelerated as part of this societal shift really occurring uh, strongly in, in 2013, going from love of party to hate to your, your reason for doing things is hatred of the other party. All really good stuff. And again, all of those are social shifts or societal shifts that have been observed over the past uh about 15 years, really, that we're seeing a lot of things moving in those directions. And uh, the consequences are, as they explain, uh, not ideal. So as for my one thing or my key takeaway, I did leave out one other thing that has been uh, a development in my life over the past uh, few months. And that is that my wife and I uh, had our had our first child about just just about eight weeks ago. Uh, So we now have a two month old. And, um, this was an interesting book to read in light of, at that time, expecting, uh, the child on the way and now evaluating how we're going to raise this child. Uh, and, and so the one real, the one key takeaway that just keeps coming back to me here, uh, after having read this book is ultimately a little discomfort is good for us. And that we ultimately should be doing everything we can to teach our kids and to ourselves be, but to model this, but to teach our kids to be anti-fragile. You know, the old sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me kind of thing. And you hear people say, oh, no, that's not true. You know, words will break my heart. Well, you know what? Actually taking the approach, teaching kids that, well, you know what? They're going to say whatever they're going to say. You can't let it bother you. That actually is healthy. And then you teach them not to actually say nasty things to other children, but learning not to be hurt by what other people say is actually, it turns out that's a good idea. Uh, well, it's, it's something that's very strong in man's search for meaning. Frankl yeah. keeps saying you can't control what happens. You can't control what other people do to you. The only thing you can control is your response. Yeah, exactly. And so teaching our kids to be anti-fragile requires actually putting them in positions where they can get hurt, where there's discomfort, where there's pain. And none of us want to see our kids ever in pain or ever hurting or whatever. But the reality is that if we don't actually, as, as human beings, have some sort of pain or some sort of negative stimulus, then we don't grow and we don't actually become what we, the, the, full, the full thing that we could be. 
so for me, that's the big the big lesson. And so out of that, that means, yeah, you want to provide structure to make sure that your kid's safe and that your kid you know doesn't wind up uh, in really bad situations. And yeah, you don't want your kid to wind up you know being really sad and 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 depressed and and having a bad life. But in order to do that, that means you have to provide the right structure. That means you can't protect against the small dangers. That means actually in order to maintain the best possible life for your kid for the future, that means I'm going to have to make sure that my child is able to actually experience pain, is actually able to experience failure, is able to, it has to actually deal with disappointment when the stakes are small. Don't protect against the small dangers, provide the ability to fail, and this is where anti-fragile comes in. Without catastrophe, you want to make sure you you protect against the things that might, you know, end the life or that could that would be catastrophic. Yeah. Avoid that stuff. <laughs> no, we're not going to go and play in, in, in the inner, uh, you know, in the interstate. We're not going to play Frogger in the interstate, but we're going to provide all sorts of other opportunities to maybe break an arm. You know what? That's not a, not the worst thing that could happen to you. And that that's a good lesson from this from this book for me. And the quote that they that they say at the beginning that I think is brilliant is prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. Yep. And that's it. That that is to me the the biggest lesson that I just keep that keeps be, playing over and over in my mind is if we want to be healthy, if we want our children to be healthy, that's the way to live. Good stuff. Well, that's going to do it for us for this episode. Before we sign off, just a reminder that you can now share your own reading list on the Books of Titans website. You can just go to booksoftitans.com forward slash my books. You can also follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter at Books of Titans. And if you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to this podcast and find all of our past episodes through iTunes, the Android Marketplace, or your podcast manager of choice. If you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to give us an effusive five-star rating on iTunes and share your favorite episodes on social media. We'll be back next week with another book. And until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. And keep improving.